So it was a beautiful day in uh, Pala, California. It was a scorching hot, 104 degrees. Uh, the dust combined with the smell of gasoline and oil and revving engines uh, made Jay smile uh, and brought a big old smile to Caden's face. Uh, we had made the trip out to see what part of creation Jay cultivates, uh, which this particular weekend was motocross. So if you ever watch motocross on TV, that's the motorcycles that go around the laps and do all the fun stuff, uh, kicking dirt everywhere. The job that every like kid probably dreamed of having was either A, riding the motorcycle, or B, realizing they didn't want to break bones, working in the crew. And Jay gets to do that. So we rented a car to head out to California. We rented a Corolla, and they gave us a Camaro. So you already know this is going to be a good trip. Uh, Caden actually almost shorted out because he had his choice between a Mustang, a Camaro, or a Challenger, and they were all lined up. And so his little brain, I think his ears were smoking. Uh, but we made it out there, and we were hanging out. We went up to the gate and got our wristbands on. They gave us, uh, they asked if we got a rider, was giving us tickets, and it wasn't a rider. It was even better. It was our friend. And so they said, all right, here's your tickets, which I assume meant we were getting lesser ones because it wasn't a rider, it was just one of the people that maintained the track. Um, and so they gave us those things, threw them on our wrist, and Caden and I went and walked around, and uh, we got to see things pretty close up. You get to go out, and this track isn't one of the ones that's in a big arena. It's all out in just the desert, so you can walk up and hear all the sounds and see all the sights and eat all the snow cones that you really want to, to try keeping up with the heat. And so we did all those things, uh, and that took about 45 minutes, and Caden was like, where's Jay? And I was like, I have no idea. This track is massive, but uh, thanks to technology, texted. He goes, I'm by the starting line. I said, I have no idea where that is. This thing is massive. Uh, and so we walked. He told us where it was to give us directions. We walked over and found the man, the myth, and the legend himself uh, right by the track, and we were sitting there watching, just kind of bellied up to the track. He gets to start all the racers, which is a pretty rad job, uh, to make sure none of them cheat, um, which apparently is a thing, and so he made sure none of them were doing that, and he just hung out there, and he was doing his thing. We're watching. Uh, we're watching towards the edge of where we were at. We were along the track, starting line here, and then there was this cool little gate thing that had, like, the Monster Energy logo on it, because, like, everything does. Um, and so the Monster Energy logo with a bouncer and some old lady like making sure nobody went through that wasn't supposed to because that's where all the cool people got to hang out like the riders and the people that were working on the bikes and all that fun stuff. And so during a break, Jay comes over and he goes, hey, what's up guys? How you doing? You enjoying it? Caden, you loving it? Daps him up real good, you know, just like you should when you're hanging out with a little person. And uh, he's like, hey, what are you guys doing over here? I'm like uh, watching the race, just like we said we were going to, and we drove out here to do. He's like, I'm pretty sure your wristband means that the only thing you can't do is ride a motorcycle here. And we're like, wait, hold on, what? And he's like, I'm pretty sure you're allowed back, like, out there. You can walk onto the track if nobody's racing. Uh, you get to go back by all the bikes where they're washing them, cleaning them, tuning them up, hanging out back there like everybody's having the good old time getting ready for their races. I'm pretty sure your wristband means that you're allowed to go back there. Uh, and then he went over and asked that bouncer and the nice old lady, uh, hey, what do the green wristbands mean? And she goes, oh, they just get to go wherever they want. They just can't go on there. And so we had been hanging out this whole time, sweating it on the other side of the track with all the 
the people with lame tickets. Uh, and we realized in that moment, we were allowed to go to the other side. And so we scooped up a fresh snow cone uh, because it was still 104 degrees and then walked through that gate uh, using the pass that we had already had that whole time and were able to get super close to absolutely everything. Like we watched the race take off and you were close enough to actually get the dirt thrown on you, which at nine years old and 40 years old is still pretty cool. Now watch this now. We had been standing outside the fence when we could have been inside of it. This has Jesus juke all over it, so I'm just warning you, it's coming. We were standing outside the fence when the whole time we could have been inside of it, close enough to get hit with those flying pieces of dirt. We'd we'd been experiencing some of what we'd been invited to, unaware that the power and proximity we've been granted with that green wristband was so much greater and the experience of joy that was available to us was so much more than we had experienced so far in that day. And it took a friend telling me the good news of what was available for us to experience the fullness of what that race held for us. What's that got to do with Ephesians? Uh, Paul wants to shape both the Ephesian church in their imagination and their activities. He's telling them again in this passage the good news and inviting them into a deeper way of living as God's new creation community. It's a way of life that because of Jesus is already open to them with blessings that are already theirs and a power that they already possess. He's just letting them know that's what has happened at the cross and the resurrection that's already yours. Over the six chapters of Ephesians, and particularly these eight verses that we're in tonight, Paul is praying and working, catch this, to see this community of moms, dads, students, formed into a beautiful kingdom outpost that they were called to be. He's talking and taking those who are struggling with body image issues, those who were abusers, those who had been abused, He's talking to men who wonder if they're destined to repeat the sins of their fathers and women who desperately want to leave their mark in the world. He's talking to professionals, to slaves, to the wealthy, and to those on welfare. He's looking out over this church that was in Ephesus, not some idealist portrayal of the church. It's not a romantic sitcom version of a community, not just Navy SEALs recruitment class of disciple makers, but everyday ordinary people. And he's whispering into their souls by the power of the spirit that God is up to something beautiful here. And as they grow up into maturity of their calling, they were going to be that church in Ephesus. You see, Paul's message, sometimes we can read it as if he's writing to people who were different than us, uh, people who wrestled with what they were going to wear before they walked into a gathering, people who wondered about the future of their bills, people who were dealing with sins in their past, people who were wrestling through their own mess, people who had spent their lives worshiping other gods and were now trying to figure out what does it look like to worship a risen Christ. It's in the same way that we're called, uh, yes, this mismatched band of friends who have all been drawn together by Jesus to have our imaginations and our affections stirred up by these same words of the Spirit some 2,000 years after they were written the first time. Uh, We believe 
that God's up to something strategic and special in this community. And if we will faithfully bow our knee to Jesus and lock arms with one another, then like the church in Ephesus, we'll be able to be a part of what God is up to in this space and in this place at our unique cultural moment. Uh, that's the journey we're on together. We're really glad you're here. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna dive into this prayer of Paul's over the next few verses. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are, we're grateful that the same king who reigned when these words were written down, the same king who was opening the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesians is the same king who opens ours. Uh, Jesus, we confess that we come into this place with scattered affections. Our lives are not pure and blameless all the time. Uh, we regularly wrestle with what it looks like to be your family, how to live as humans in this world. And so we bring all of that into this conversation. Grateful that you love us, grateful that you welcome us, grateful that your spirit is at work already in us. And so we ask that you would speak to us tonight. Uh, speak clearly, speak prophetically. Would you encourage where that needs to take place, where you convict where that needs to take place? And above all, Jesus would much be made of you throughout this entire evening that we gather. We love you, and we ask this in your name, and by the power of your spirit, amen. Amen. Uh, the slides on the screen are going to be the text, so you're welcome to look up there. It'll be the NIV version of the Bible, which is what we use most times from the front. If you've got a different version, you're welcome to use that as well, but that's why the words just might look a little bit different in the one you're reading than the one we have up here. And so as Emily read the whole prayer, this is one prayer Paul was praying for his friends in Ephesus. Uh, last week, David taught, and he showed us some incredible good news about how God wanted to shape not just what the Ephesians were doing, but literally to make them aware of who they were now because of Christ. Like there was so much packed into when he gave that list of what the new identity is in Christ, that when people are participants with Jesus in his story, they change in the core of their being. If you've been rescued by Jesus, if he's brought you into his family, then at the core of your being, there is a shift that has taken place and all these things that didn't used to be true about you now are true. And there's about 30 minutes of that from last week. So you should really listen to that because that's why Paul starts off for this reason. Uh, for this reason means in light of everything I just shared about heaven and earth coming together, of God's redemptive purposes throughout history, of God's kingdom being like Reese's peanut butter cups, where chocolate and peanut butter magically and deliciously come together in one beautiful thing, all part of that message. In light of all that, this is what I do. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, uh, stop and look up. Paul is writing to people already on God's mission. And this is important because what he's writing isn't to those people who uh, he was trying to recruit into being a part of God's family. Uh, these weren't people that he's like, hey, you've never heard this good news, but I want you to hear it. 
Uh, you've never heard about Jesus, but I want you to believe in him. You've never heard of this story where God is the hero, but I want to tell it to you. These are people who were faithfully following Jesus as the church in Ephesus. Uh, they had already thrown their idols in Acts uh, 18, 19 in there somewhere. They had already thrown all their idols in witchcraft into the middle of a bonfire to say, we worship Jesus and not demons anymore. And so we're going to throw all that in and have a big old bonfire. Uh, they had flipped over the economic system of Ephesus. They had started a riot. They had said, we're all in on Jesus. He's not just another God on the shelf, but he's the Lord above all. They'd already revoked their passes to the temple. They had already chosen no longer to do business in the business guilds. They had already formed together in these little pockets, household to household of people who said, here's what we have in common. We believe in Jesus and we're in Ephesus. Now, how do we do this? He's talking to those. When it says the faith in Jesus, uh, that can be taken one of two ways. The first way is, is faith where Jesus is the object. The other way is to say it could be reading as faithfulness to Jesus. Uh, those two ideas go together. Faith in Jesus is always represented by faithfulness to Jesus. Uh, in your Bible, there is no category for you to have faith in Jesus, but be faithful to another God in that moment. Do we all struggle? Yes. But by and large, if we say we have faith in Jesus and live lives that look nothing like if Jesus were Lord, then the Bible would say you might want to you check yourself. Because faith in Jesus will present itself in faithfulness to Jesus. And he says you guys also love each other really, really well. In Paul's writing, faith and love are two of the three things that he always weaves together. Hope's coming up so he didn't forget about it. But faith and love. Another reason this matters is because that piece of love is exactly what the Apostle John would write about. Do you guys remember when we were going through our letters to the church in Revelation series? Uh, this church in Ephesus was the exact church that he wrote to, and he said, you've forgotten your first love. You're still doing all the things, but this one thing I have against you, you've forsaken your first love. And we talked about how that love was love of God and love of people had been pushed aside in order to probably do the stuff of ministry. And they were at risk of Jesus saying, I'm gonna shut this thing down if you continue on that pathway. And so we can celebrate with Paul what Jesus was up to in this church's life. But I also want this at the jump for us to serve as a little bit of a warning uh, that just because these things are true of us at one time does not make them true of us at all time both as a community and a person. Like when we begin to assume that clearly I'm faithful to Jesus, like I'm a Christian, and clearly I love other people, I'm not a jerk. We begin to just assume that of ourselves. And then we presume that what we're doing is that without ever giving it conscious thought, without ever pressing in, without ever going deeper, but just kind of staying where we're at, then eventually those things will become less and less the actual tune of our life and more nostalgic. And so Paul's writing back to his friends, but in this moment, they're faithful. They're doing it. It's beautiful. This is a kingdom outpost in a massive city that worships an entirely different deity named Artemis. And they say, hey, Artemis is not God, Jesus is. And watch what he can do in power. 
This was the same city where Paul's handkerchief was healing people. Like Paul couldn't get around to enough people. And so people took his like handkerchief, his bandana, right? And were going around with that and just touching people and they were getting healed. Wild, wild stuff. And they had continued on trajectory and it was beautiful. Uh, Paul keeps praying. He says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Uh, anyone looking to plant the gospel faithfully over time uh, needs to make note that prayer is essential, uh, not optional in the life of the follower of Jesus. Uh, prayer is essential. The conversation with God, being had with God for the sake of others, is essential and integral to the life of the disciple maker. And Paul knows that. Uh, he's just practicing it. It's what he does. Since I heard about this, I haven't stopped praying for you. Uh, Missio, we would do well to just make notes and say, man, who are the people that I'm grateful for the way that they follow Jesus because it stirs something up inside of me. Or when I see this person doing this, uh, I'm so grateful because that fills a need in our city that is desperately needed. When I hear stories of Michael caring for his neighbors or Jake caring for his neighbors or Nick caring for his neighbors and they just threw a party with a slip and slide thing, Pretty rad. Um, when I see people doing that and intentionally forming lives for the sake of their neighbors, like there's something to be excited about that and to pray over and to be excited and pray that the spirit holds them strong, right? When I know Mike and Nicole are out in Gilbert, far off, far, far away, um, I have an alert that goes off my phone every day after Mike prayed for missionaries at 10.02 a.m. So if I'm meeting with you and you see me silence my alarm, I just mute it. Until I'm done with people. Uh, but at 10.02 a.m., which is a passage in Luke 10 to where it says, pray to the Lord for the harvest because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so it's a passage that reminds me that, oh, Mike and Nicole asked for prayers. David and Tara moved to a new assignment in Denver. They're looking for people to join up with what God's up to in their part of the world. I'm going to be praying for that. Uh, but that's not just something pastors do. That's what we do for each other as a family. Praying for one another. Uh, Kenzie got baptized this year. Uh, a lot of you guys were here to, for that to celebrate it. We did it right up here. Uh, I was so excited, I almost forgot to say, I baptized you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so like whispered her in your ear right before I, you know, dunked her. And so, uh, but it still counts. Um, one of the things that we said we wanted to do in the first year of anybody coming into the family and being baptized uh, after some experiences, um, recognizing that this was a gap, was to say, hey, somebody should walk with that person for at least a year afterwards to teach them some of the first things about what it is to follow Jesus. So yes, that takes place in a missional community. Uh, yes, that takes place on a Sunday. Yes, that takes place in our kids' classes in a long life. But somebody intentionally giving attention to that is really important. And so uh, Kenzie and I meet up every Friday uh, at a coffee shop, and we talk through just some different things of life and what it looks like to follow Jesus in light of that. And the thing I started with is different than something I've ever started with. Uh, normally, I, I come in with, here's what you need to know as a follower of Jesus. That's just my bent. That's how I think about things. I'm like, all right, there's a whole lot of new information. Here's what you now need to know, which is true. And so if you're information people, that is very true. Uh, but what I realized is what would actually sustain people through many more seasons of life if instead of here's a bunch of facts first, here's your father first and learn to pray to him. And so we started uh, that time with just going through that daily examine that we have. Those five questions, six questions that wrap up going through the story. 
Uh, she answers a few of them throughout the week. It's a very simple tool. Uh, just to, at the end of her day, a few times during the week, she thinks about, here's what I'm praying. Here's what I'm praying. And then we talk about those things. And it's way different of a posture, but my hope would be for her and for any of us that come into the family of God, that that's something we learned first, that God is somebody to be talked to, not just somebody to learn about. And Paul gets that. He prays deeply for them. And he continues to do that. He uses this language a lot. I continue to pray. At this point, he's in jail, so he's got a lot of time to, to put into that. So when he says, I pray a lot for you, you can be sure. He's sitting in this Roman jail, most likely. He's got a lot of time to pray. Uh, if we canceled out some of our social media or Netflix, we would also have a lot of time to pray. And I would encourage us, what would it look like to bump that up to the detriment of some of the others and even see what God does with that? So people who pray are always part of what God's doing. We're gonna keep going. What exactly does he pray for him? I keep asking that the God of our Father our God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. Uh, Paul wants them to have the spirit of wisdom. Uh, that is the ability to live with God's creation intent. It's not just to be smart people, uh, but to live with wisdom, to see how God lined the world up and then to be able to live in his intentions for that. Uh, that's how the Bible speaks about wisdom all through the Old Testament. In Isaiah, it talks about how the spirit of wisdom uh, it will be Jesus himself who will lead his people in that. He wants them to be able to have this ability to look at the world, recognize what God's up to in it, and join him in that space. To look at what does it look like to use finances in line with God's created intent? What does it look like for sexuality in God's created intent? What does it look like for my vocation in God's created intent? What does it look like me to do hobbies in God's created intent? He's saying, I'm praying all the time that the Father, that God, the one who's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, would give you that wisdom through his spirit so that you don't struggle like everyone else does trying to figure out how do I live in this world, but to have him show you. And revelation, it's this idea of making known the things that were previously hidden. Uh, he wants you to be able to see, I want you to be able to see the world as God sees it. In the book of Revelation, it's the imagery of a curtain being pulled back where you can see what's going on in the heavens even as earth seems to crumble under the Roman reign. He says, that's what I want you to see, that God's still on his throne and what the world looks like. In this prayer for the Ephesians, he's saying, I want you to see that even in a world where it looks like Artemis has the biggest temple, where it looks like Artemis has the most followers, where it looks like you have to bow your knee in this particular way of life in order to be anybody in this society, that that's not true, that you would see that in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus reigns, and it's amazing. I want you to be able to see the world with wisdom, knowing how to live, and with eyes that are open to recognizing things that were previously hidden, but God shows you. And that's not always mysterious things, but it's just things we didn't see before. And the purpose of those two things was so that they would what? What's it say up there? So that they would know God. So that they would know God. 
which is different for those of you keeping track than knowing about God. A knowing God is an experiential uh, lifestyle of being able to trust him more, rely on him more, be attached to him as a father and a good giver of gifts, not just knowing about him, like knowing his stats to answer on a test. Uh, you could say you know the Platt family if you follow me on Instagram, though you're going to be getting a really, really small picture of what we do because I always forget to follow my, like I don't post on there a whole bunch. But you could say like, oh, I know this. I basically know when you're out of town a few days later because you post a picture and I'll know roughly that you went to San Diego or you went here. Uh, what you don't know um, off of that is what are the things that happen actually in our family? Like, What's our family like? Like, you wouldn't know if you walk around my house. We have a couple call and responses. Uh, none of them are about really worship, um, but we have a couple call and responses that people say. Like, if you walk around my house and somebody says, goodness gracious, you can expect to hear great balls of fire immediately after. Um, and then from Caden's obscure hip-hop references, uh, if you, somebody says, around here it smells funny, you can believe that somebody's saying, onions getting peeled. You can Google, it's a thing. But you can guess that that would take place. Why? Because that's what takes place in our house. You can know if you say the words bless me in our house, that Lyric is about to throw his hands up and start singing Kurt Franklin on you, bless me, bless me, and it go off for the next five minutes and you lost him. Uh, you can know that if you put on any country song from the 2000s, all of my kids' eyes will roll and Kaylee Ann will sing as loud as she can anything off the country 2000s playlist. But you don't know that right, unless you spend time in my house, or I tell you on a Sunday. But even then, you still don't know it because you haven't laughed when you see all the kids be frustrated at mom for seeing country instead of what they like, which is a way to get them back after a long day of them not listening. And so we could take different parenting courses later, but that's one of the uh, consequences in our house. Um, point of this being, uh, Paul wants them to have spent time to recognize wisdom and to recognize in this revelation the reality of who God is and to know him deeper. The aim of every follower of Jesus is to continually grow in a depth of knowledge of God. And that pool has no bottom. Right? Like it can be a deep end. My pool's a 10 foot pool, which is a lot deeper than a lot of pools in Arizona, which go in that like five foot range so you can walk around everywhere and nobody's supposed to drown. Um, but you can't do cannonballs, right? And so we got that deep diving pool. That's only 10 feet. This pool of who God is and what he does is as deep as the ocean. You aren't ever finding the bottom of that. And so you can follow Jesus your entire life and still have more to experience about who God is. And Paul says, that's what I want for you. Like, like, I want you to know God. I want you to make that a pursuit of your life. He doesn't even say doing stuff for God at this point, does he? He says, I want you to know him deeply. Does that change our behavior? Absolutely. But the order of that, like we talk about, matters incredible. Um, if you are, some people would say, uh, I, I did know God. I followed him for a little while, then he didn't come through in the way that I thought he was going to, and so now I'm out. And I would, I would gently, uh, but pretty firmly say is like, that was probably some of that knowing about God, but not having built up that relational trust in him. 
Like you had God on retainer for the things that you wanted him to do. And when he didn't perform the way you wanted him to do, you fired him and went to something else. But the invitation here for Paul is, no, no, no. You can grow in this depth and wisdom and revelation and participation in what God's up to. We are always at risk of forgetting who God is and what he's done. And so we regularly need to be reminded this is who he is and this is the gospel. And that's what Paul is doing for his friends. Let's keep going. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope. There's that hope one, right? Faith, hope, and love. That you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Uh, Paul is praying here that the eyes of their heart are enlightened. Uh, This is not less than their minds, but it's certainly more than it. Uh, Paul is asking and begging and pleading with them that they would be able to have the eyes of their heart open. This is a phrase that he makes up. It's not used anywhere else in scripture. Uh, Most likely they say that people would come into Artemis in order to have this great uh, divine revelation when they would show up at Artemis who was this worshiped as a meteor fallen from the sky. They said, that's Artemis. Looks like Artemis. Let's make that Artemis build a massive temple around her. And she was the goddess of wealth, of sensuality, of fertility, of economics, all these things. She was that for this region. And so people would go to her in order to get these great revelations on how to live life. And so Paul is pressing directly on that and saying, no, 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 revelation comes from God. And knowing him as a person, as a deity, is far greater than Artemis. And I'm praying that the eyes of your heart are opened up, that they would be enlightened or light would flood in so that you would know these three things. He says, I want you to know the hope to which he has called you. The hope. This is basically a request that everything he's just talked about in the previous verses would make sense. Uh, that you would understand this incredible story of God and all that he is up to in the world and how you're called into that and how heaven and earth, which were separated at the fall, are one day going to be brought back together in completion at the restoration. He wants them to see how Jesus was the hero, the rescuer, the deliverer, the Messiah, the promised one, the way that every page of scripture whispered his name. He wants them to see that that story is a story of hope. In a world full of bad news, worn out and weary because everywhere you turn, something else is falling apart. Another relationship isn't lasting. Another person relapsed. Another seemingly disaster is taking place at some point in the world. The news cycle runs on end telling you what's not right in the world. In a world weary with bad news. Our story that needs to be told and retold is one of hope. He says, I need you to tell one another. I I want you to have your eyes of your heart opened and remind each other of the hope of his call in your life is one towards flourishing. And I need you to remind each other of that because the world's going to do so much work to tell you that's not the way it's working out. 
that this story is fake news and here's what's real. But that beautiful hope. Christians, uh, we enjoy a profound sense of security. Uh, We don't have to wonder with the rest of the world what happens at the end of this. Have I done enough? Have I secured enough for myself? Uh, Will I have done enough right at the end of my life to really make this all make sense and to be able to be in the right place when this all ends? Or have I not? Uh, Christians enjoy a story where God is a God of hope. He tells you what the end of the story is. And we are invited to live right now in light of the fact that he ultimately holds the destiny of everything. It's a story of hope. It's a story of security. So even when circumstances threaten to undo us, we need to have our foundation built on the blocks of hope that Paul's given us so far in this book. Because you best believe the storms of life and the weight of this world and the worries and concerns of things that are not the way they ought to be will crash against us. Now, secondly, he wants them to know the riches of his inheritance or their inheritance. And again, with this one, there's two ways this can work out, and I'm going to give both to you, and I like them both, so I'm kind of cool preaching either one. Uh, the first one is that God has an inheritance for us. Uh, this has been guaranteed to us by the Spirit. It's what he's talked about just before. Uh, God will reunite all things back to himself, and he has begun that work in the family of God. So right now, we act as a preview of that world now. And we bear witness to what God is doing in the world. And so that inheritance is a reunited heaven and earth, the restoration of all things that we look forward to that one day will for sure happen because the security of the deposit of the Spirit has already been given to us. That's on lock. That's what's there. So I want you to know the riches of that inheritance that is to come. That's pretty good, right? Like that's a pretty cool story. That's pretty incredible. And that sounds pretty mind-blowing. And if I just marinate in that a little bit, it will absolutely shape my life. The second way it could go about doing it is uh, to the richness of his inheritance in the community. It's uh, we are God's inheritance. Uh, David talked about this a little bit last week, saying how in new creation, it was taking form in a community. So we're God's inheritance, and maybe what Paul is saying is he wants the believers to know how valued they are by God. Uh, This is a great and glorious, infinitely powerful God, but he's also the Father who treasures us as his own possession, and that inheritance that he's given to us is this redeemed community that we get to engage in life with right now. And so commentators put it back and forth, like, is it this one or is it this one? I don't know. Like, I think they're both really good. Um, And so you're not going to always get all the, this is what the Bible for sure means for me. Uh, But that, in that space, uh, either one of those both paint a beautiful picture, and both are present in other parts of Scripture. So I'm comfortable whichever path you take on that one, uh, because both are backed up in other places in the biblical story. Third thing. Third thing. He wants them to know his incomparably great power for those who believe. He wants them to know the power of God that is at work in the church. And catch this, I love this. 
He doesn't ask God at this point to start doing powerful things. He says, I want you to know the power that he has for those who believe, which is present tense, not future tense. This is not one day when things are restored. This is not one day when all things are made new. This is not one day when he wipes every tear from every eye, which he absolutely will do. This is right now. He has power that is accessible to us. He has power that he wants to give us. He has power that he wants to work through his church as we represent his reign to the world. And it seems like as Paul's praying this, there's a piece of that that they haven't quite gotten yet. And he's like, I want you to still get this. Like, I want you to know. Have the eyes of your heart opened up so it's able to flood in and recognize that he is powerful. In this text, there's four different ways uh, in the next little bit that he... Flexes. So this is like, he's like, I want you to know how powerful Jesus is. Like, I want you to know the power that God has at work. And you'd be like, all right, cool. What's the next point, Paul? And he's like, no, 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 no. We ain't done with that one yet. So look down and read with me or read up there. He goes on to read this way. He says, that to know his incomparably great power for all who believe. And maybe he'll be like, all right, cool. We can relax in our seats. Then the person reading the letter keeps going. That power is the same as his mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Thing number one to flex, he raised Christ from the dead with this same power that's at work within believers, right? Raised from the dead, kind of a big deal. And then seated him, thing number two, seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. Uh, remember last week David talked about the heavenly realms being where all the deities would dwell in their Greek mindset as they looked out at the world. And he said, no, 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 when Jesus died and rose again, he got to go to the place of the gods. And he's speaking a language that was familiar. He's not saying that Zeus is real or that Thor is real or that Artemis is real and actually is somewhere. He's going into their mindset saying, when Jesus died, he was that guy. He went to the heavenly realms. He was above all. Far above all authority and rule and power and dominion and every name that is invoked. And not only in the present, but also in the one to come. He says he also stands above and he placed, he's up at the top, right? He's atop above every name that's ever been named, that will be named, that could be named, both in this age and the one to come. Basically, nobody's getting to be more supreme in authority and power and glory and honor than Jesus, right? Nobody ever, and if they do come along later, they still don't get to win. That's Jesus. And he keeps going. And God placed, third thing, all things under his feet, and then fourth, appointed him to be head over everything in the church, for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Uh, catch this, in this fourfold unpacking of beautiful praise, worship, explosion, he's saying, Jesus stands supreme. Uh, Jesus alone is king. When it comes to battles, he's already won in this dramatic and decisive victory in the cross and the resurrection, Jesus did something that dismantled death and the curse that was upon creation. So you better believe heaven and earth get to come back together. He's already won that victory, and he's talking to people who believe that. But in their experience, like ours, we're tempted to lean in and be like, but is it really? Like, there's, there's a lot in the world. 
There's a lot in my life. There's a lot in my family. There's a lot that I've experienced that is not made right, and I don't see any way that it's going to be made right. And he doesn't promise that everything right now will be made new. That promise came for eternity at some point. One day he will. But I love that this power that he just unpacked is present tense. And so there's a declaration that needs to be made. A saying, I know it seems like fill in the blank, whatever that is in your life is winning. But hear this, fam, according to Paul, according to the Spirit, and according to me, it is not. Jesus is still king. Jesus is still king. And you might need to remind yourself of this regularly. And that's why Paul starts off the letter here saying literally to us, like, I want your hearts to be opened up because it's hard to believe this sometime, but I want you to believe it. I want you to know it's true. I want you to know as certain as the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which you already believe, and the assurance of an inheritance that's coming for you, which you're waiting and hope for, that absolutely his power is real. And in a culture like they had that was uh, swarmed with demonic activity and swarmed with idolatry and corruption and brokenness, a part of the Roman Empire, which seemed like it would never topple, and slavery, which was awful, and patriarchy, which was oppressing people like crazy, and ethnocentrism, which was pushing the marginalized even further out. People needed these reminders. I know it seems like death is the most powerful. I assure you it is not. I know it seems like drugs are the most powerful. I assure you they are not. I assure you cancer is not the most powerful. Your sexual temptation is not the most powerful. The American dollar is not the most powerful. Divorce is not the final determination of your identity. Your bank account is not your value. Your addiction is not most powerful. Your ability to follow the rules does not reign supreme for the religious in our crew. Jesus does. Your friend's heart, your spouse's heart is not impenetrable. Jesus rose from a grave. Your neighborhood is not too dark. Your sin is not too damning. Jesus reigns and rules And he wants us to walk in that power now. Now, some days that may be tripping, like literally us tripping along. Uh, Some days that may be in full stride. Some days that may be a humble walk. But Paul's saying, what if we had a community of people here in Ephesus who really believed that and arranged their ideas and their imaginations and their activities in such a way that they were taking up God's role fully assured of these things. Man, I don't just pray that for Ephesus. I pray that for us. Like, like, that's what I want from us. That's what I want for us. And that's why we let the words of scripture roll over our hearts and our souls. I'll put this screen up there. I'm not gonna go through this. These are all the things that then the power of God works itself out in. As you, I'll 
post this out, send this out. But through the book, these are all the different ways that Paul says, God's powerful enough to do this. He's powerful enough to take an ethnocentric worldview that was super racist and then form one family out of that community and put that on display and say, this is what God's redemptive family looks like. The rest of the world can get in line. Now, we're still trying to figure that out. But he's like, that's what the power of God can do. And he's got a whole long list. I'm going to bring this in. The head of the church is a victorious and powerful Lord. On this basis, Christ can import to the church all of the empowering resources it needs to both resist the attacks of the powers and engage, and engage in mission of filling the world that God has called us to. So what do we do? I encourage us. It sounds simple, but those first words, be praying for each other. Put people's names in and just pray this prayer that Paul just prayed. Let the words of scripture form our hearts and our prayers. Take moments with one another on your knees before the king of kings and beg and press in. Pray for one another. If you're feeling curious or you'll be feeling convicted, take the next step. What is that? Is that to confess to somebody else? Is that to turn towards Jesus in an area of freedom? Is that something that you've been feeling a prompting to move out on, but you've been lacking the assurance that God was really with you in it, and you're hearing him say tonight, no, this is our thing, and I've been waiting for you. Let's go. Prayerfully consider what's the next step. In the story I told at the beginning, Kate and I are sitting at the fence. Jay tells us, hey, good news. You guys can do anything but ride a motorcycle. We had a choice. We could have said, that's incredible news. Thank you so much for letting me know what kind of authority and proximity and power we get with these wristbands. I appreciate that. And then stayed at the fence because it was less walking. It was easier to stay on the fence. It was hot. It sounds comical. It'd be crazy, wouldn't it, to have settled for a lesser life when we knew the power and proximity and the beauty and the joy that was waiting on the other side. To hang out and let that pass by would be pretty crazy, wouldn't it? Do you guys pray with me? Jesus, we are so grateful, grateful that you love us, grateful that you care enough to speak to us, uh, grateful that Paul took the time in his jail cell to even write these words down. And so I ask, Spirit of the living God, that you would continue to stir in our hearts, convict us where we need that, encourage us where we're failing, as I look at it, my friends crying, would you uh, comfort them with a hope that comes deep from the well of the goodness of Jesus? Oh God, the enemy wants to snatch these good news reminders and say it's not true, it's not true. But your spirit has a sweeter whisper, a gentler voice, and a more powerful ability to grip our souls and so we pray, would you do that work? Open the eyes of our heart, enlighten our eyes so we can see with hope 
the call that we have, the riches of the inheritance that are already ours, and the greatness of the power that is at work in those who believe. We ask these things in your name, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit is here. Amen. Uh, friends, we're going to come to the table tonight. And if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, a participant in the story, you say, I believe that good news you just talk about, even if I'm struggling to. Then the table's going to be open and, and the bread and the juice. And there's no better place to be reminded of what we just talked about than right here at this table. In it, we find the hope of the calling that we have is Jesus. And he has already done everything necessary for salvation. Uh, we see that there is a richness of the inheritance. We see the riches that is ours because of Christ. And so we come to the table and take the little bit of food representing a much larger feast that one day we'll enjoy. And in this, we find the power of God at work. It's in his life, his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension that we have a hope and a future and the power to live not just the next five minutes, but into the future. We have hope. We have an inheritance. And that power is there to sustain us in Christ himself. And so Nick's gonna come up and join me at the table and we'll serve you the elements and invite you as you're singing the words to come and take the elements, return to your seats and just take them whenever you're ready as a reminder of the life-giving food and drink that Jesus gives us for our journey. You're welcome to the table. <laughs>